welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about Phantom of the Opera Jr. so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read The Ghost in the Third Row by Bruce Coville. Joining us to discuss this first entry in Flashback Summer 2018 is young adult author and lifelong Bruce Coville fangirl, Becky Allen. Hello, Becky. Hello. Thanks for Thanks joining for- us. Jinx. Yes, what she said. <laughs> I, I never knew that owning about 50 Bruce Coville books was going to come in handy like this. <laughs> yeah, so this is Flashback Summer. This is the third year in a row that we are doing this. And if you are new to the show, uh, this is the time of year where instead of focusing on more recent-ish bestsellers or books we've never heard of, uh, we take a couple months off and uh, revisit favorites of ours from our youth. They are not necessarily bad books. They're just books that we, you know, fondly remember reading when we were younger and are interested in uh, revisiting now that we're older just to see how they hold up and how other people enjoy them. And I don't know. I don't know what we do except for not have to read shitty books for three months. I know this is such a, such a, Sweet balm to my soul after Ready Player One. I know. (laughs) So I, this is actually not a flashback for me. This is the first time I've ever read this book or this, anything from this series. And I, I'll let Kate and Becky talk a little bit more about how, how they felt about it as kids and all that. I just want to say, I didn't know what this was. And from page one, I was like, oh my God, this is so much better than Ready Player One. Just like... (laughs) Just take me away to Ghostville, Bruce Coville. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I uh, probably unsurprisingly, if you listen to this show, as a child, I would read basically anything with a ghost on the cover. I started weirdly by reading quote unquote nonfiction ghost books. Folklore, which I think I've talked a, a little bit about on the show before, but a lot of those like 51 real ghost stories type books in my elementary school library in particular, there were some where I was literally the only person on the card, like all the way down for three years. Oh. <laughs> I would just take them out over and over again if I couldn't find something new that I wanted to read. And I also uh, started to read a lot of fiction ghost stories as well. Um, And Bruce Coville, in particular, I just, like, I loved him. I read tons and tons of his books. Uh, I still own a ton of them. Like, I'm looking right now over at my shelf. I did not need to purchase this book again. I still owned it from when I was a child. And I have a ton of his other ones. And this series, in particular, is very formative, looking back on it. Uh, There's a lot of things in here that are still things that I love, And I think I was telling someone earlier this week that I think this is the first book that I ever wrote fan fiction of. And it was in that that kind of way at the beginning before you really know that fan fiction exists where like you write a story about the characters, but you change their names. So it's like very clearly those characters still but like you know you're pulling the wool over your teacher's eyes by changing their names although in my case I probably was pulling the wool over my teacher's eyes because these books were not something that was necessarily popular at my school or anything uh so I don't think uh she necessarily would have picked up on it anyway but you know two best female friends solving ghost mysteries together is pretty much my aesthetic (laughs) Yeah, when you asked me if I wanted to talk about this book with you, I was like, of course Kate is a huge fan of this series. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I as soon as I read it, I mean my first thought was like, thank God. And then my second thought was like, yeah. If I if I were to make something up that would be Kate's favorite childhood book, I think I'd be like, Yeah, it's about like two girls who find a ghost in a theater. I don't know, there may be like what else would be in it? They would also probably find a skeleton and they might kiss at the end and eat a watermelon but this is like pretty much (laughs) pretty much it (laughs) yes for me um bruce coville actually was a very popular author at my school growing up because i'm from upstate new york not too far from syracuse um and i think he was the only author who actually did like an author visit at my school Mm -hmm. 
So when I was in first grade, he came to my school and I got a copy of Sarah's Unicorn, uh, which is a picture book. And my sister got the ghost in the third row. She's a couple years older. Um, and then I read it, you know, a couple years later. And then I read everything else by him that I could get my hands on because um, I was less into ghosts, but more into like aliens and spaceships and dragons and fantasy and princesses. And uh, that's basically his jam and my mom also really liked them so I my collection just sort of grew and grew and grew over the years um and like Kate I still have an enormous amount of his books on my shelf he was very very formative for me I went to a signing that he did for a more recent book a couple years ago and cried um so so yeah I have been a huge Bruce Coville fan for pretty much most of my life um, and was really excited to have a chance to revisit the books. I read the whole series. They are very fun. So I guess, Renata, like, before we get into what the book's actually about, like, what were your initial impressions of it as a woman in your 30s? There definitely are a few moments that are very dated. And I mean, some of them, it's just like, oh, yeah, they don't have cell phones. Like, the plot kind of revolves around needing to pick up the phone or whatever, um, needing to go to the library and use microfilm, etc. There, There is one moment that I think we'll get to that is... You can tell it was well many at the time, and now it is pretty cringy, but definitely not as bad as it could be, and definitely not as bad as a lot of the other books we've read for this podcast, for sure. Even, like, more recent books, I think, have, that we've read have handled uh, mental illness way worse than this, than this children's book from 1987. Yeah, it's, it's cute. It's funny. Uh, it's a good, a good mystery for younger kids that even, um, you know, it's not too predictable, but it's not... Um, it wasn't gross. I love that it wasn't gross at all which is a problem I have with anything that is, like, sort of scary. Like, it tends to go hand-in-hand with being gross. And you all know that I don't like things that are gross. So that's the best thing I can say about this book. It wasn't gross at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, really interesting, I don't, I didn't necessarily, I've got a terrible, terrible memory now. Um, Speaking of mental illness, like, depression has completely eaten holes in my memory, I have forgotten, like, huge swaths of things that have happened both yesterday and many years ago. Um, So once I started rereading them, everything started coming back to me. But an interesting thing, and I think, Renata, you had noted this in your notes as well, to me, is that the ghosts are real and other, like, adults don't question it. Like, they, either they have seen it or they accept that they have, that the girls in the book have seen the ghost and don't judge them necessarily for it. Yeah. I feel like the the easy way for this book to go, would be like, Oh, we have to prove that the ghost is real. And like, no, they don't. People are like, yeah, we know about the ghost. <laughs> yeah. Which is um, something that I really like. Cause I think that there's a lot more interesting world building and storytelling inherent in like, okay, well, like, this is a real thing and we accept it, so our focus is, like, how to solve this mystery and not, uh, like you said, Renata, like, well, how do we prove to the adults that we're not crazy? Um, Which is something that happens a lot in uh, modern horror movies, which is an interesting shift over time. Um, Back in the day, a lot of supernatural and paranormal-based horror movies would have, you know, the the new young wife or, like, a young woman seeing weird things happening, but her husband or, like, the grown-ups and the other men around her or whatever don't actually believe that it's happening. They just think she's crazy. But really, there are ghosts. And as um, we as a society have, like, seen some of the sexism inherent in that, there's been a real shift to changing it to children, Um, And don't get me wrong, there are still a lot of horror movies that come out today where it's like, oh, it's all in the crazy woman's head. Um, But it's a lot more focused now on like, oh, like children are seeing weird things, but they're just kids. They just make stuff up like it's not real. And it is like kind of frustrating because it is like a kind of a narrative shortcut to having to get out of like having to tell an actual story about what's going on. And instead tell a story about, like, people trying to prove to other people that supernatural things are real. And then in the last 15 minutes, like, banding together to fight them. 
Um, and it's one of the reasons I really like the Conjuring movies. And uh, clearly this was a feeling that was imprinted on me at a young age when I was reading these books. And it really continues that way throughout the series. I just reread the third book. Um, and by that point, Nine, is the, the protagonist, is like, hey, Dad, I need your help opening this rusty metal box that a ghost gave me. And her dad's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, speaking of these stories, maybe we should move into trying to summarize the plot of this. But... Sounds good. <laughs> so these, this is a series of, um, I believe, three novels and at least one or two, if not more, short stories about a girl named uh, Nina Tanlevin, who goes by the nickname Nine, uh, and her because, friend... Because 9, 10, 11, you guys. <laughs> I just needed to spell it out. Because at first when she said it, I was like, why is her nickname Nine? That's dumb. And then she spelled it out for me, and I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she has just... She's auditioning to get a part in a new play that is based on true events that happened in this historic theater um, downtown in the city where she lives, which is it explicitly Syracuse or is it, it is just explicitly Syracuse? Yes, um, okay. I don't think the theater is real, but I'm not sure. Cause I'm not quite from Syracuse, but definitely through the series. She's like, and then we went to downtown Syracuse, New York. <laughs> yeah. And this one, she said Syracuse too. Okay. So she's, a, it's a historic theater, possibly fictional, possibly real. Who knows? We didn't do that much research. Probably haunted. Um, <laughs> in uh, downtown Syracuse and it has this it's really run down and her father who's an architect is on a, a board or a, a, a planning council or a construction firm or something to help uh, make it better to re, re uh, renovate got it I found the word the word is renovate <laughs> to help renovate this building uh, so she's trying out for these this new musical that's being put up there and while she's in the middle of her audition, she looks out into the audience and she sees a ghost sitting next to her father in the audience. In the third uh, row. Yes. <laughs> so she freaks out a little bit, but finishes her audition and gets cast in the play. And there are three young girls in the play her age. Um, one is a girl named Chris Gurley. And one is a girl named Melissa. And Melissa is a prototypical mean girl. Mm-hmm. And Chris is uh, kind of like sarcastic and tells a lot of jokes and very gregarious. And the two of them like immediately bond and they very soon find out that um, they both have seen the ghost. Chris has also seen the ghost, but didn't want to tell anyone. She thought people would think she was crazy. Uh, and nine has obviously also seen the ghost and also similarly did not tell anyone she's seen it because she was afraid everyone would think that she was crazy. And they, who is it? Someone at the theater tells them that this ghost can only be seen by young women who love the theater. And that's like the legend about the ghost. Yeah. Her father actually. What was that? Melissa never sees the ghost because she's a mean girl. Yeah. Melissa (laughs) doesn't love the theater. She just loves the drama. Yes. That is accurate. Um, so the, the play that they're performing is based on uh, loosely the history of this theater that they're performing in, uh, where a long time ago, there was a very talented actress who uh, was doing a Broadway out-of-town tryout at this theater, and there were two like young, attractive men in the theater troupe that was performing the show who both fell in love with her, and she decided on dating one over the other and the story goes the other one was so enraged by his rejection that he murdered her and uh was then arrested and put in jail for the murder and that her ghost is trapped in the theater because of reasons that i've actually forgotten but reasons i mean because of the murder yes that too <laughs> uh so they are They've both seen this ghost. The ghost has seen seemed very sad and very kind when they've seen her. Uh, so they're very confused when, at the beginning of a rehearsal one day, the leading lady of the show, Lydia, 
uh, runs out into the lobby screaming because someone has torn up her costume. She's playing the character that is the ghost, essentially, uh, in the, the character in the play who the ghost was in real life. Um, so she's sure that the ghost is destroying her costume because she doesn't want the show to go on. And it starts to like make everyone like a little hysterical in the audience, in the the rest of the company. But both Chris and um, Nine think that it doesn't seem right. Like the ghost didn't seem vengeful. So they decide that there's a mystery of some sort that they need to solve to figure out who's trying to sabotage the show. Which includes a trip to the library, which is one of my favorite parts. Yes. Uh, they go to the library to look up the microfilm for what happened in real life um, when this woman was murdered and find that all of the microfilm from the month that this young woman was murdered have been stolen from the library. So they can't get any articles or any information on her. So they go to the theater and they do some classic like young teenage sleuth snooping around getting their noses into trouble sort of nonsense at one point something else bad has happened and like the cast is all very angry and they're having like a, a whole company meeting arguing over whether or not the ghost is real when um the ghost sits down behind them and they like kind of freak out a little bit just because it's so unexpected and Melissa the mean girl sees that they're freaking out and is like what like do you guys see the ghost and they're like yes and everyone freaks out and they're pulled into the company manager's office and when they explain to her what happened and then are able to provide her a very detailed description of the ghost she like kind of calms down like she's known for being kind of a hard ass and is like okay I believe you've really seen her because I used to see her too when I was a young woman who saw who loved the theater so like I I definitely believe that you've seen her and that you're not just troublemakers so yes it's great um but she she is kind of like your kids like just be kids and they're like no we're detectives yes I don't know it's they Pop is, like, the caretaker of the theater who's, like, a gruff old man who they're a little scared of. But they go into his office for some reason and see that he has, like, a scrapbook of news clippings from uh, from whatever, 1935. Like, from the date that they were looking for from the library. Yes. Which seems suspicious. Yeah. And they, the woman, Gwendolyn, who, like, was like, oh, you've seen the ghost. I know that that's right, because I've also seen her. Uh, she is also like, well, the ghost is nice, so I don't think that this is ghostly. I think this is sabotage, and I don't know who would be doing it. So they're like, all right, we're on the case. Uh, so they're suspicious of Pop, because he has this weird scrapbook of old news clippings. And because he seems mean. Yes, and because he seems Cause, mean. Because one of the other top suspects is the understudy for the lead role, but she seems nice, so they don't think it's her. Yes. And um, they also think it might be the costume designer, because when they're talking to her, she mentions that she hated the dress that Lydia wanted to wear that got destroyed, and that she was, like, really close to quitting because Lydia insisted on wearing it and she thought it was garbage. So they're like, oh, well, like, maybe she just tore up the dress because she hated it and is blaming it on the ghost, but really just, like, wants to get it out of the way. They also find out that the writer of the show uh, spent some time in a psychiatric hospital. So like, oh, like, maybe he did it because he's crazy. But then one of the adults hears them saying that and is like, hey, like, people who are in psychiatric hospitals and who go for help for mental illness, like, are not crazy. Like, they're very brave. And mental illness is just the same as any other illness. And you girls have to, like, respect that. And it gets a little preachy for a couple pages as they're like, we learned a lot about mental illness and how, like, people aren't crazy. They just need help. And it's very brave to go to a psychiatric hospital. And Kate, and that sounds like the kind of, like, sort of funny, like, glossing over summary that we do. But I'm pretty sure some of that is just line-for-line quotes from it. And in fact, you'll hear because it's one of our dramatic readings. But it is is a little preachy and yet also extremely nonspecific. We only know that Ellen has 
mental illness and not like what's up just just some kind of yeah. non-specified mental illness that has made him very brave yes and this is what renato was talking about at the beginning a little bit it, it it feels very progressive for 1987 to have like three pages in your book dedicated to that your book for middle grade readers and it does feel like it would be progressive in a lot of books now when you know we're still fucking living excuse me for getting on my soapbox in a world where we say like oh like if you're suicidal seek help but we also blame people with psychiatric conditions for every terrible violent thing that goes wrong even though people with psychiatric conditions are more likely to be the victim of crime and violence than the perpetrator of crime or violence but that's my day job so I'm a little Hmm. sensitive to it Mm -hmm. um so yeah like it, it is very awkward and preachy and a little weird, but it is, it's coming from a good place and I'm kind of enamored by it because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So some more like weird things happen during a rehearsal, the ghost appears again and gestures for the two of them, Chris and nine to follow her out of the theater and into like the back rooms. And that she brings them back down to pop's office again. And they find that, uh, the scrapbook that he has is not just a scrapbook about the, about the time of the murder. Yeah, it's a scrapbook about the theater in general. Like, it's all sorts of news clippings about things that have happened in the theater over the years, like, since that time up to present day. Um, so they're like, okay, well, maybe he's just a man who really loves the theater and is keeping articles about it. Like, it's not that strange then. Oh, they also see him after they see the ghost sitting behind them in rehearsal and freak out about it and kind of like cause a panic. At the end of that day, they find Pop sitting in the theater right by where they said the ghost was like crying by himself. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Uh, So they hear someone coming when they're looking at Pop's scrapbook. So they like kind of run away very quickly to hide because they don't want him to catch them in his office. And uh, they get locked in this little room and they start to panic until they realize the ghost appears again and shows them that where they actually are is where the lift to the stage is from underneath the stage. So they get in it and are able to escape like being locked in this little room. They pop up on the stage like they're Destiny's Child (laughs) at the Super Bowl. At that point, Gwendolyn, who is the company manager, comes in and is angry because someone has broken into her office and burned all of the publicity materials. And she is there's only two keys to her office, and one of them is on her key ring, and one of them is in her office desk drawer. And there's no other way, apparently, that anyone could have gotten in. Except Pop has a key, but Pop also has an alibi. Yes. Uh, and as she's saying that, she holds up a matchbook from a restaurant where they saw Lydia, the leading lady, having lunch with Alan, the writer, the other day. And Nine gasps because she has put together what has happened. So while she's waiting for her father, to, or she's waiting for Chris to come meet up with her so she can tell her uh, later that day or the next day or something about how she's figured out who did it and why Lydia confronts her. And she's like, I saw that you figured out that I did it. How did you figure it out? And uh, nine explains that she put together that Lydia had been alone in Gwendolyn's office at one point, long enough to steal the key and that her name is Lydia Crane. And the name of the person who was imprisoned for murdering the ghost was, some guy named Heron and Heron and Crane are the same word for, or different words for the same bird. Yeah, she wa- she solved the mystery by playing categories. Essentially. Um, so as she's like being confronted in a very like Scooby-Doo, I would have gotten away for it, uh, with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids moment. Lydia comes after her to push her off the balcony to kill her, obviously, to keep her quiet. Because uh, essentially she, her father, has had convinced her that he didn't kill Lily, that 
it was Lily's other suitor, the one who she was engaged to, who actually killed her and then framed him. And Lydia has grown up believing this and she needs to get revenge for her father. But just as she's about to push Nine off the balcony, Pop shows up and starts grappling with her. And it turns out that Pop is actually the guy who was engaged to her. And the reason he's still there is because after she was murdered, he vowed that he wouldn't leave the theater until he was sure that her ghost was at rest or something. But yeah, so they they grapple on the balcony and Lydia pushes Pop over the side and he pulls her with him or she falls off and he offers her a hand and then she pulls him down with her actually, I think is what happens. And uh, Pop dies. Pop fucking dies, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Lydia survives and is like arrested for murder or attempted murder or real murder possibly. Yeah, she's arrested for, for being the worst. Yes. And the show goes on and it's great and everyone loves it, especially because there's all this publicity around the whole murder thing happening. Uh, So they sell out like their whole run. And on the very last night, as Nine is taking like one last look at the theater, she sees the ghost again dancing on the stage. And then the ghost of like Pop as a young man fades in as well. And they dance together and everyone is dead happily ever after i guess the end and it's like so sweet you guys it was very sweet for for a violent murder it's so (laughs) sweet (laughs) i feel like the book is is very light on the actual violent murder like i don't think it actually says at the time and then pop died it's just like and then we were remembering pop's life later on when she's recounting it like they, they go very light on the actual death part what is she? Because I got to like whatever it was, and I was like, "Wait, what? He died?" I'm flipping through because I would like to have this on the record. Yeah, it goes. It goes from uh, he tries to help her, and they go over the edge together too, with the mystery solved and stuff happening after the fact. And... Yeah, but then after the fact, but one other experience in the old Grand Theater that summer burned even more deeply into my heart. It happened the night after Pop died trying to save my life. That's fucked up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it was very, you know, it's it's fun. It's cute. It's very, very formative for me. <laughs> it, it is overall the kind of thing, though. I mean, it, some libraries still have this in circulation. It's the kind of thing, overall, I think you could hand to a kid today and they wouldn't be like, this is... Like, I don't understand this at all. I think a kid who likes the theater, likes the ghost, I think you could still mostly give this to a kid and it'd be fine. We did talk about the mental health thing, but like we said, I think there's a lot of books that come out now in this year that are way worse about it. Yeah, I honestly think the weirdest thing that kids today would find about it is the part where when Nine goes home and she doesn't have Chris's phone number, so she looks up every girly in the phone book (laughs) and calls them all. And eventually gets Chris's answering machine. Like that part might throw them a little bit, but yeah, that was reading. That was so much fun. Cause I was like, Oh, that is for me a real flashback to like the early nineties and being in middle school. And like, how do I get in touch with my friends? Like I hadn't thought about that exact feeling in so long because it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. It made me think about seven digit dialing, which like when was the last time you did seven digit dialing? Actually, my my town in upstate New York was so small that we, for until I was about eight or nine years old, we only had to do the final four digits. Wow. wow. That's crazy. Whereas I think we switched to 10-digit dialing in my town when I was like 10. <laughs> town than where I went to school, so I always had to do whole area codes check to anybody. It's to be honest, in like going through like Ithaca, which is where I'm from, and the areas around there now, when people have like when businesses have their phone numbers listed, they still only have the seven digits listed uh, because it's it's all one area code from a lot of upstate New York. Guys, remember phones? <laughs> remember memorizing phone numbers? <laughs> Folks, remember microfilm? <laughs> <laughs> this is horrible. But I was actually thinking a couple days ago how, like, I always take my cell phone with me everywhere, even when I'm just, like, going to the bathroom in my building or, like, running down to mail a letter. 
or something because I'm constantly terrified not to like bring it down that like there'll be someone with a gun or something terrible will happen and I won't have it. And because I don't have any phone numbers memorized anymore, I won't be able to get in contact with anyone and tell them that I'm okay. (laughs) I think about that if I'm ever arrested, how I would make one phone call because I don't have any phone numbers memorized. Uh, I I don't know what I would be arrested for in this scenario, but, uh, but it's, it's something that I have been nervous about for many years now. I'm just lucky my mom hasn't changed her phone number in a long time because I still got my mom on lock. That's all I need. Yeah. My, I remember my parents, like my parents' home landline phone number, and it's only because it's been the same phone number for so long that I, it was before I had a cell phone. But yeah, it is uh, how my how things have changed. <laughs> Kids today don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. I, I do feel like I'm a million years old reading this. <laughs> that's, you know what? It's flashback summer. Uh, that's what we're here to do is just celebrate being one million years old and and live in life. Yeah, I, I'll say too, to, to harken back to the, to go back to the um, whether or not kids today would enjoy these. There were a lot of Bruce Coville books on Hoopla, um, which is... I went on to see if they had the audio version so that I could listen to it just because I listen to books better these days than read them. And they didn't have the audio version of this one, but they did have like 25 audiobooks of his and then like another 25 ebooks as well. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even. Yeah, I mean, I, Bruce Coville, like that name is still like out there. I think that the, my teacher's an alien. I think that stuff is maybe more popular like I like I mentioned before I had never heard of the Nina 1011 series personally but a lot of the other ones I have and I do see them around like I think the the humor is pretty timeless yeah I think that my teacher series was um reissued a few years ago with new covers um Mm. the the Nina books I think were at some point because I've definitely seen alternate covers for them but I don't think those were ever as well known where my teacher was definitely like that that was the one where people who are not from upstate New York have heard of it. <laughs> yeah. That and uh, Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, I think were like the two biggest non-hardcore fans ones that I, that people that I knew knew about. And it wasn't, you know, they were ones that kids would buy from the Scholastic, the Scholastic Book Fair at my school, but not necessarily in the way where I was like, I need to own every book that this man has ever written because he speaks to my soul kind <laughs> of way that I, I went after them. Me, me too. <laughs> I also did not have to repurchase any of these books. They were still on my shelf. <laughs> well, I got it from the library, and I'm glad that I did. So, should we move on to our dramatic readings, or do we have anything else we want to say about the plot in general? Sounds I like think... no, we don't. Yes, I think we're good to go. <laughs> All right, so our first dramatic reading is one of my most favorite parts of the book, which is when they go to the library to do some research. And I will be the librarian, obviously. Kate will be Nine, who's also kind of the narrator. And Becky will be Chris, the cool friend. Well, it wouldn't hurt to learn a little more about this woman in white, just to make sure she's harmless. How do we do that? I've read the script five times already. Forget the script. Alan and Paula said the script was based on a true story. If that's like on television, I'd say it means only three things out of every hundred have to be true. Come on, let's go to the library. Why the library? Research, dummy. I doubt there are any books about this story. It's just a local thing. So we look in the local newspapers. They save that kind of stuff, I asked, thinking about the stacks of newspapers we threw out every month. They have to. It's their job. Come on, let's get moving. I, the fast sprinter, was wondering how Chris could talk so much and run so fast at the same time. She didn't slow down until we started climbing the steps to the library. The librarian at the front desk sent us upstairs to the reference room. We had to climb a huge set of winding marble stairs to get there. In the reference room, I got the second, but not the last, major shock of my day. The librarian sitting behind the desk was a hunk. I mean, who would have thought it? Librarians are supposed to be little old ladies. Okay, I'll admit a lot of them aren't little and a lot more aren't old. But how many of them are guys who look good enough to be models? The hunk stood up as we crossed to his desk. 
Can I help you, young ladies? Yes. We'd like to look... At your eyes, I finished without realizing I was speaking out loud. Chris jabbed me in the ribs with her elbow. At your files of local newspapers. In the periodical room. We headed off in the direction he indicated. By the way, do you know how to use the microfilm reader? I shook my head vigorously. I hoped that if by some chance Chris had already learned how to use the thing, she would have the good sense to keep her mouth shut. Better let me show you. It's not hard, but there's no sense in wasting a lot of time trying to figure it out. He led us into a room that seemed to contain only three kinds of things. The first things I noticed were long shelves filled with sets of books that all looked alike. I couldn't figure out why they had so many copies of each book until I looked at their spines and realized they were magazines that had been bound into book form. I wondered for a minute why they bothered. I mean, who would want to look at a 20-year-old copy of Ladies Home Journal? But then I remembered I was here to look at a 50-year-old local newspaper, so why not a 20-year-old magazine? Next, I noticed dozens of squashed-looking file cabinets. Not squashed as if they had been sat on by an elephant, just squashed as in being about twice as wide and half as tall as the ones I was used to. You see people shaped like that sometimes, too. It's always a real shock. The third things were these big glass and metal machines that looked like they had been made out of television sets and storm windows. Now what year did you girls have in mind? We looked at each other blankly. You just told me you've read the script five times. What year is it set in? Script? Asked BBEG. That's blonde, blue-eyed, and gorgeous. Are you girls doing a show? We're in The Woman in White at the Grand Theater. Talk about magic words. It turned out that the librarian, who told us we should call him Sam, was an actor too. I could tell that in his eyes we had suddenly been transformed from underage nuisances to human beings. It was as if we had just found out we were part of the same family. I just, I love it. I love the hunky librarian. I love the, (laughs) (laughs) I love the microfilm. I love the research skills on display. Just top notch. (laughs) The, even the joke that is maybe fat shaming is just like so weird that I'm like, I mean, if you saw a person with the proportions of a microfilm cabinet, (laughs) it would be unusual. (laughs) (laughs) you know you can you can be beautiful and healthy at any size even the size of a microfilm cabinet but i'm just saying it would catch your eye okay the next the next dramatic reading we have doesn't have any microfilm in it but it's fine uh it's oh this is when uh well, nine and and chris both have gone to talk to paula who's the company manager i think someone higher up at the theater to talk to her and they what composer oh she's the composer that's right yeah she says it right there (laughs) i was busy thinking about microfilm (laughs) she's the composer and uh nina has has recently learned about alan's mental illness and she is trying not to say anything about it and feeling awkward about it and I'll be Paula. No, Kay will be Paula. I can't do anything, guys. Kay right. will be Paula, the composer, and I will be nine. You act like writing is something magical, as if things always come out right the first time. Don't they? My poor little nine. I hope you're planning to be something simple when you grow up, like a tax lawyer. Every once in a while, a song comes out right the first time. And those times aren't magical. But mostly it's just hard work, writing it over and over until you get it as good as you can. Sometimes the song doesn't work at all. Alan and I threw out more songs than we kept when we were writing this show. I couldn't believe such waste. You guys are crazy, I said. Did you ever wish you could take your tongue and tie it in a knot so it would stop getting you in trouble? As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I remembered what Eileen had just told us about Alan. Actually, I probably would have been all right even then if I could have just let things alone. But not me. No. What did I do? I clapped my hands over my mouth and looked horrified. Like a complete idiot was the way Chris described it later. She was right. Paula looked at me sharply. I take it you've heard about Alan's problem? 
I was so embarrassed. I think my toes were blushing. I nodded my head, afraid that if I opened my mouth, I might say something stupid again. Come with me. I want to have a talk with the two of you. Half an hour later, I knew more than I ever wanted to know about mental illness. I also knew a lot about Alan Bland and how brave he was. That was the main thing that came through in Paula's talk with us. How much courage it had taken for Alan to put his life back together after things had gone haywire. By the time she was done, I was pretty much convinced that Alan Bland would not try to wreck his own show. Not only that, I could sing my song. It turned out that half the problem had been my song, and half had been my nervousness, which was largely because of Melissa's judging me. Now think for a minute. If having Melissa watch you makes you so nervous you can't sing, what do you think it does to Alan to know that people are watching him for any little sign he's going to mess up his whole life? I thought about it. I didn't like it. Should we say something to him? Yeah. Hi. How are you? I like the show. I don't like the show. The same kind of stuff you'd say to everybody. Don't treat him like he's different or anything. Here, hit this note. I did. It sounded wonderful, if I do say so myself. Perfect. Now scram, you guys. I've got work to do. Yeah. Hopefully you see what we mean about the roughly 50% of this podcast that we have given to discussing those two pages. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, our last dramatic reading is the big um, reveal of the bad guy at the end. And for this one, Becky will be playing Nine. I will be Lydia, the evil leading lady who did the murder, did the sabotage. And Renata will be Pop. R.I.P. me. Well, what was it? How did you figure out it was me? Gwendolyn's office. I don't understand. You tried to blame the ghost one time too many. Since I knew it wasn't the ghost causing the trouble, it had to be someone human. So I asked myself, who could have gotten into Gwendolyn's office besides her or Pop? It seemed that it was impossible, until I remembered the night your dress got ripped up. Or should I say, the night you tore up your dress and blamed it on the ghost. Say whatever you want. Just get on with it. Well, I remembered that Gwendolyn had asked Ken Abbott to take you to her office so you could lie down. No matter what else I think of you, I have to admit you're a pretty good actress. You had to be, to pull off all that screaming hysterica and make it seem real. Anyway, you were in there alone for a long time. Plenty of time to get a key out of Gwendolyn's desk drawer. Very clever. But that's not evidence. Someone else might have been in there that you didn't even know about. True, but it all just fell into place after that. I might not have figured it out if I hadn't seen the ghost myself. You didn't. Oh, but I did. Several times. So I knew what she was like. That was why I couldn't buy your story about all the trouble she was causing. Then I realized all we had to go on was your word. You were the one who was disrupting things with your claims that the ghost was after you. Who had a better chance to rip up that dress than you yourself? Once I figured out the bit about the key, it all fell into place. Except I still couldn't figure out why, until I thought about your name. Suddenly the coincidence seemed too much. Andrew Heron was convicted of the murder of Lily Larkin. Lydia Crane is starring in a play about that murder. Crane and Heron, Heron and Crane. The names went round and round in my mind until I remembered that Heron and Crane are two different names for the same bird. But then, I'm sure you already knew that, don't you? Lydia Heron. Lydia stood up. I thought she was going to hit me. Instead, she reached for the envelope. No, I said without thinking how dangerous it might be to try to stop her. You can't have it. Oh, but I most certainly can. She grabbed me by the arms and pushed me against the edge of the balcony. Let go, I screamed. Let go of me. She continued pushing me sideways over the balcony. I struggled, but I was afraid that even if I managed to break free, I would lose my balance and fall over. Let the child be, said a gruff voice from behind Lydia. It was Pop. Chris was standing next to him, out of breath and looking terrified. You stay out of this, old man. I said let the child be roared Pop as he came charging down the aisle. Lydia pushed me aside and turned to face him. Get away from me! Get away from me, you murderer! Pop stopped in his tracks. It wasn't me, Lydia. It wasn't me, and you know it wasn't. Your father was the man who killed Lily Larkin. He killed her and left me here to wait for her. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. You did it. And they blamed him. You ruined his life, and I'm not going to let this show stir all that up again. 
And with that, she threw herself at Pop, scratching and clawing and hitting as if she had gone out of her mind. They fought for a moment at the edge of the balcony. Then Lydia took a wild swing at Pop, missed, and lost her balance. She fell against the railing. He reached out to help her as she grabbed his hand, and they went over the edge together. Dun, dun, dun. Yikes, you guys. <sighs> Lydia doesn't die. Only Pop does. That's the almost worse. Anyway, for, for me as an adult reader, it was upsetting. But the, the ghost moment was very touching. All right, let's play some Would You Rather. Sounds good. One thing we didn't mention that I thought was a very funny and appropriate detail is that when Nina is auditioning, she sings Tomorrow from Annie, and she's embarrassed because she's one of the last ones to go, and every other girl has also done Tomorrow from Annie (laughs) for their audition song. So I'm going to ask, would you rather have to sing Tomorrow from Annie for an audition for something, or have to hear a bunch of tween girls sing tomorrow from Annie as a director holding auditions. Uh, this is easy for me because I can't really sing very well. So I would absolutely rather be the director hearing it, even if it started to get repetitive. I get very self-conscious about singing in public unless I'm like singing along to the radio because I know that I'm not a great singer. So I would be much less self-conscious just listening to a bunch of, like, 11-year-old girls singing it over and over again, no matter how annoying it might get. Uh, same. In fact, I will go so far as to say I'm pretty sure I would enjoy listening to a whole bunch of tween girls sing Tomorrow from Annie. I like Annie. I like listening to the same song over and over on repeat. And I do not like singing in public. This is very easy. Uh, that's how I feel now, but I think that when I was a preteen girl, um, I definitely would have wanted to be the one doing the singing and auditioning. Um, I was not good. I am still not, which is why I don't anymore. Uh, but I definitely, like, in my 11-year-old heart, was like, yes, I want to sing. Well, um, I hope that you had the chance to as a child. How about, would you rather use a microfilm to solve a mystery or read an old man's scrapbook to solve a mystery? Uh, I'm going to be straight up front about this. I learned how to use a microfilm a million years ago. I do not remember and have not had reason to use it since then because it is no longer the 90s. It is now 2018 and the internet exists. Um, And while I know microfilm isn't dead, it's certainly not as needed as it was back then. And as I said earlier, I can't fucking remember how to do anything. I can't remember the plot of books that I like, let alone how to use microfilm. So I'm going to use an old man's scrapbook to solve the mystery. You know, I think that scrapbooks are really interesting to look at. You learn a lot about what's important to people. Uh, Plus it would have the whole history of this theater and all the stuff that was happening there. And all of these articles about the murder. And we all know how much I love murder. You do love murder. Yeah, I think I agree with Kate. Um, I would rather look at the scrapbook because microfilm machines are kind of intimidating. I think I maybe tried to use one in college and was very bad at it. And I feel like Pop's scrapbook in particular would be really interesting. And it was full of like pictures of him with movie stars who had stopped by the theater for some reason. I straight up would rather do almost anything than use microfilm for any reason. (laughs) Uh, Kate's right. Microfilm's not dead. We do definitely get people who come into the library and need to use microfilm and need help with it. And probably like once every two weeks, I have to help someone with microfilm. So I have to use it often enough that I dread it, but not often enough for me to actually like develop my skill and get good at it. So literally every time someone asks me, I have to like look at the chart and like talk my way through it and like screw it up the first time. And it's honestly one of the most stressful parts of my job. And give me that scrapbook. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone, please finish digitizing everything in the world immediately so I can finally stop having to use microfilm forever. That's all I want. Is it so much to ask? It seems reasonable to me. All right, how about, would you rather watch Nina Tanlevin's community theater production of this original musical called A Woman in White, or watch a production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical A Woman in White, which is a completely different thing, based on the Wilkie Collins story that I haven't read? Hmm. I'm going to go with the Andrew Lloyd Webber show, uh, because I feel like it's going to be it's gonna be very, like, 
theatrical and, and full of bombast and exciting. And I think I would enjoy that more than the community theater show starring 11 year olds. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see, I actively want to see Angela Weber's A Woman in White. I've never had the opportunity. I want to check it out. Uh, also, you know, I'm I'm worried about Angela Weber's tax bills. I want to make sure, that, <laughs> I just want to make sure he gets paid. That's a callback to the episode we did about Angela Weber's memoir, if you didn't listen to it. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm very pro-community theater and local theater and like regional productions and we all know how I feel about Andrew Lloyd Webber which is meh (laughs) but I feel like I remember someone I cared about was in the cast the Broadway cast of The Woman in White and I can't remember who it possibly could have been but if I recall correctly, it came out, like, pretty much at the height of me, like, fucking going to rent every day. Mm-hmm. So I knew a lot of people who were working in theater in New York at that point. I have no memory of who it was. But I, I do feel like someone I knew was in it. So I might have to go with that just for that person, whoever it was. Now it's time for Reader's Advisory, where we'll suggest some books for you to read instead of or in addition to uh, The Ghost in the Third Row by Bruce Coville. So I basically have two types of recommendations. I have recommendations of other books I was reading in like 1992 when I was reading these books. And then like current middle grade horror that I've read recently. So I'm basically just going to say, I'm not even going to give specific books, but like the three other authors who I was reading every single book that they produced, because they were all like weird books about ghosts and shit, (laughs) were Betty Renwright, Vivian Vandveld, and Mary Downing Hahn. So if you want to read like late 80s, early to mid 90s, middle grade ghost stories that you could buy for $2 from the Scholastic Book Fair look up any of those authors and read their books and you'll learn a lot about me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually, I also had uh, Mary Downing Hahn's wait till Helen comes um, as one of my suggestions because I did not read a lot of ghost books, but I read that one around third grade and it freaked me out enough that I actually remember it really clearly. So if you like middle grade ghost stories, definitely look at that. This was not really the kind of thing I was reading when I was a kid, so I don't have any, like, retro recommendations. If you're looking for a book from now, I recommend the Backstagers comic series by James Tinian IV and Ryan Singh. Sieg? I don't know how to say their names, but they'll be on the website. Uh, it's a really cute comic series about um, some boys who are working in the backstage crew and at their school's theater club. And then it turns out that the backstage area actually connects to like a magical hidden realm, like kind of a Narnia, but weirder. It's really fun. It's got some queer and trans characters. It's backstagers. That's all I got. Oh, also this is not related, but this is the perfect time to mention that Becky Allen, the guest on this podcast, has written a couple of books, and you should read those for sure. Uh, the first one, Bound, Bound by Blood and Sand? That That is the title. Yes. That is not a slam on you. That is a slam on me constantly being able to not remember the order that words go in in book titles. To be fair, YA fantasy book titles make that kind of difficult. It's, it's, they, it's a, there's so many words in them. <laughs> a lot of words in, like, the same six or seven nouns. Yeah. <laughs> But Bound by Blood and Sand uh, is young adult fantasy. There are not ghosts in it, but there are flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll say, too, that uh, if you pick up the audiobook of that, it's narrated by January Lavoie, who's one of my favorite audiobook narrators. So it is an excellent series anyway, but also anytime you can have January Lavoie read you a book, like I'm extra in favor of it. So, which is, so that really just makes this all bias. A, my friend wrote this book. B, also I love the person who read the audiobook. But outside of those two things, even, it, it is a good, and this is from someone who does not normally read fantasy, as we have established. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I threw a freaking party when uh, January LeBoy was suggested as one of the possible narrators. I was like, yes, her, please. She's yeah, so she's good. great. <sighs> congrats. Um, congrats on that git. Yes. <laughs> um, a couple other more modern recommendations would be, I, I recommended uh, Dan Poblocki's books on the podcast uh, a lot in the past, I think. I think that he is... Uh, one of the best writers who's writing uh, horror for middle grade readers currently today. So anything by him, um, The Nightmares is one of my favorite. And um, The Jumbies by Tracy Baptiste. Uh, I think there's two now. That sounds Or maybe right. more. You should read them, though. They're good. I've only read the first one, but I would assume that the rest are also good. There's just a lot of books, and it's hard to stay on top of all of them. But I would recommend definitely the first one and probably the rest if they're as good as the first one was. Um, I would also recommend uh, for, for recent YA, um, the ghost series that we read for the podcast is middle grade, but if you go up a little bit into YA, uh, Justine Larbalestier's Razorhurst is historical fiction um, set in Australia in the 1930s. Uh, and it is also about a girl who sees ghosts and those ghosts are a lot angrier um, and meaner. But it is it is very interesting and about about girls who go, which is seems like something relevant to people who would like these books. Yeah, I would agree. Yes, that's good. All right, so we'll have all of these and probably some other ones we didn't get a chance to mention up on our website, worstbestsellers.com. And now we will move on to our candy pairing, where we suggest a candy to accompany this book. Uh, my candy pairing for this book, uh, going with the flashback summer and the things Kate loved when she was 10 theme, would be uh, yogurt-covered raisins from the bulk candy aisle at ShopRite, uh, which was my favorite candy when I was 10, which sounds fake, like something that a parent would trick you into saying, but it is actually true to my life. My brother would get the soft caramels and I would get yogurt-covered co raisins like a nerd. Yogurt raisins are dope, though, as a grown-up. Uh, <laughs> mine is Dots, which to me have this very specific memory attached to them, which is we have in like a historic movie theater in the town where I'm from that shows like it's a non-for-profit kind of somewhere between like art house-ish theater, but they would also show like old movies and kids movies. And at that theater, concessions cost $1, so we were allowed to get candy if we went to that movie theater, but not if we went to the normal movie theater, but the regular movie theater. But they had sort of a limited selection, and one of them was Dots, and that was my favorite of the options at that theater. And so it was just sort of this, like, it's a pretty good candy, it's, you know, it's fun, it's this kind of tasty treat to go to the fancy theater and get your Dots, and that's what this book was to me. I went with uh, the C. Howard's Violet Mints, which are uh, candy that was first, like, created in the 30s, um, and they are still around. They're, like, hard candies that taste like violet, I guess. Um, but they have, like, the same fancy, like, floral wrapping paper that they did in the 30s. Um, and I went with those because I think Lily Larkin would really enjoy them. And they felt, right. very, yeah, they, they felt very appropriate for this book. All right. So now that we're all hungry for candy, we'll move on to The Rock Paper Snicked, where, of course, Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if you were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if you were in this book, and Becky will choose which most enhances the book, or choose paper, which is leave the book as is. If Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would be one of the actors in the play, along with Nine and Chris. Uh, and he would absolutely believe in the ghosts when uh, the girls claim to have seen it. And he'd do his best to, like, help their investigation when needed. But he won't do, like, that thing that grown-ups on Tumblr always want to do with children's books where it's like, where are the parents? Why isn't it an adult helping them? Uh, because, you know, he understands that, like, you know, sometimes girls have to do stuff for themselves. Can I interject very quickly, Kate? I'm sorry. Would you say that The Rock knows his role? Yes. Okay, because that was... <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. that you... It's like a wrestling catchphrase. The Rock says, know your role. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> that joke's so funny now that I explained it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry, go on. I won't tell you anymore. 
Okay. So, yeah. He would help them out when they asked or, uh, you know, when they needed a little bit of a nudge. Um, but he'd mostly let them run off on their own. And in the end, uh, he'd be running lines on his own when he'd hear the commotion in the balcony uh, with Lydia and Nine and Pop. And he'd dash into the theater just in time to heroically catch Pop in his arms, saving his life. Uh, the majority of the book would pretty much remain the same, but Pop would not randomly die in the last two pages. So if Wolverine were in this book... He would also know his role, for the record. Uh, Wolverine would be friends with Nina's dad, who would maybe sometimes pick her up from rehearsal or just sort of be around as, like, a gruff but well-meaning uncle-type figure, as Wolverine so often does with young girls in a completely non-sketchy way, as we all know. Um, and the day that everything was going down with Lydia and Pop and all of that, Wolverine would be supposed to pick up Nina, and he got the schedule mixed up and he came early and he gets sick of waiting for her outside in that alley where they get picked up from. So he goes in to see what's happening. He sees the confrontation and I think what would happen, he would get there at the time such that he could sort of pull Nina away so that she would not have to watch pop fall off the railing to his death, which is again, is very glossed over, but it seems like she did have to do that in the book. So she wouldn't have to watch that. I don't think he'd save pop though. I think pop would still die because I do still find that ghostly reunion very moving, and I don't think Wolverine would interfere with that. <laughs> so that's what Wolverine would do. Uh, that's that's really hard because on the one hand, um, I don't I don't want Pop to die because that's disturbing and sad. Um, but I do like that ghostly reunion a lot, um, and I don't know a ton about Wolverine. But one of the things that I do know is that he's friends with teenage girls and like mentors them. Absolutely. And I, I think that uh, Chris and Nine could really use that since they would have, you know, an adult other than Nine's cool dad, I guess, to to talk to about the mystery. Um, so I'm going to go with Wolverine, but just barely. I hear you. Um, that it's, it's always a tough call between Wolverine and The Rock. Yes, there's no losers in Rock, Paper, Snicked. Especially not in this one where even paper doesn't lose. <laughs> That's right. Well, the the only loser, I guess, is Lydia, because she does still have to go to jail, though. Yes. That's fine. But she falls off the balcony and doesn't die, so that's, you know, kind of a win. That's true. Uh, great. All right, so what do we think the moral of the story is? Uh, my moral of the story is that sometimes the strange, grumpy old men who warn you to stay out of restricted areas because they're dangerous really do have your best interests at heart. My moral is that the all-lady reboot of Phantom of the Opera is way better than Love Never Dies. That is true and also not difficult. <laughs> gotta, get, gotta get one more Android Weber reference into this podcast for sure. Uh, and my moral was that everyone should be very glad it's not 1987 and you don't have to use phone books or talk to answering machines anymore. Oh, thank goodness. That is absolutely true. All right, now it is time for Duarte's Corner, where, of course, my cat Duarte will give his opinions about the book. There he is. What, what a good boy. I don't know if you can hear him. He is meowing in the other room. <laughs> anyway, Duarte, you're right. We completely forgot to mention that uh, Chris's family has a cat, and the cat is great. They're absolutely, there should have been a theater cat. Nine should have had a cat. Everybody in this goddamn book should have had a cat, and you're right about that. Nine does have a cat. No, wait, Nine has a cat? I thought Chris had the cat. Uh, no, Nine has a cat. I mean, Chris might also, but Nine's name is Sydney, and he is very fat and hisses at people. Yes. Nine definitely has a cat, and, you know, I, I can see the, the need for, or why you would think, I guess, that there would be a need for a spinoff entirely about Sydney, but, you know, I, I think maybe maybe that's another time for you to open up your AO3 profile and write your own fan fiction, Torte. Mm hmm but I, I will say that the third book in the series does feature Nine feeding a cat in a haunted house as a plot point. Oh, thank God. All right. Well, that sounds amazing. Duarte, thanks as ever for your input. And now do any humans have any closing thoughts? Uh, I have one quick one, which is that if you liked the reunion at the end of The Ghost in the Third Row, I highly recommend uh, The Ghost War Grey, the second book in the series, where the reunion at the end, uh, at least one of the times I have read it, made me cry. Uh, it is also very touching and sweet. 
Great. Yeah. I mean, I co-sign reading all of these books. I love them. I'm on board. They are, uh, the whole series is very good. Um, and in the second book, they learn a special lesson about racism. And mm. in the third book, they learn that war is bad. I mean, they kind of already knew both of those things, but like the books are like, let's make a point of social commentary and in an awkward early 90s way. <laughs> that sounds fine. Uh, yeah, I got a co-sign. I'm coming to these books with 0% nostalgia and loved it. So good job, Bruce Covell. I don't know what kind of an award you should get for this, but you should get something. <laughs> we'll think about that. We'll report back to you in a couple weeks on what award we might mail to Bruce Covell's house. Uh, and I'm then sure I'll love it. I'm sure you will. In the meantime, uh, if you want some more from us, you can like us on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash worstbestsellers. We're also on Twitter, where we're at worstbestseller with no S, because the S got jammed in the microfilm reader, and I cannot get it out. Uh, (laughs) We also have a Goodreads group that is best accessed by going to our main website, worstbestsellers.com, and clicking on that Goodreads link. You can also subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. If you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review us. When you rate and review us, it pushes pushes us up a little bit in the charts and makes it easier for new listeners to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we will be forced to send Pop's Ghost to give you a stern, gruff lecture about how you do need to rate and review us. That's just the way these things go until he shames you into doing it. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Uh, Patreon is a crowdfunding website where you can pledge a small monthly recurring donation uh, that comes to us to do things like uh, pay artists to design merchandise for us, buy new equipment, fund other important things, you know, Buy cat stuff. food for Duarte. Cat food for Duarte, buying copies of books that we can't get from the library, etc., etc., etc. You also get some perks like uh, early access to new merch, early access to different polls that we have. You get our you get our monthly newsletter where this yes. month I I broke the story of Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you get some up to the month pop culture news. We do also have a merch store that you can get to by going to our website at worstbestsellers.com, where you can purchase all sorts of different designs to wear our podcast on your body. Hell yeah. All right. Finally, uh, if you you just want to follow me personally on Twitter, you should. And I'm at Renata Snacks. If you want to follow me personally on Twitter, I'm at 14across. Uh, And if you would like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at AllRib. Got anything else you want to plug, Becky? You got a website, got a book coming out. Uh, I mean, you got books already out. Say them again. <laughs> so I'm at AllReb on Twitter. Um, you can find out about me and my books at BeckyAllenBooks.com. Um, and my sister and I have a podcast that is not nearly as uh, nicely done as this one, uh, but it is a lot of fun where we watch things we've only heard about from the internet and judge them called Rachel and Becky Judge Things. <laughs> <laughs> on brand. Great. All right, uh, we will be back in two weeks. Flashback Summer is going to keep on rolling on with Ramona and Her Mother by Beverly Cleary. This is very exciting. Flash and pray far back, and I'm pretty excited about it. All right, Becky, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun, and I still love these books. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.